0: here we are right now with the next episode in our series finding other worlds a commentary on narnia this is a series i'm going to assume you've listened to the other episodes so we don't have to do too much catch up if you haven't go back listen to the previous episodes we're talking about the magician's nephew And we've just got up to this glorious moment, which is the birth of Narnia. And Diggory and his friends are in the thick of it. And there are a few other comments that we could make. There were a few other things that we could notice about this story, this discovery of this new world, Narnia, and there's a parallel which is between what was called the deplorable words, which were the words that ended everything in the witch's world, which killed everyone, and Aslan, the king of Narnia, the creator of Narnia, singing a song. To bring things into existence. And that connection is very important to understand. That parallel is very important to understand. And it's a parallel that exists in this world. It's something that's actually real. Very much so. In so many ways. So what we have is on the one hand this evil character of the wicked witch and this godly character this good character of aslan and in both their cases they're using their mouth they're using words and in aslan's case it's a it's a song but a song is not far from words and they both have the opposite effect And that shows the significance of words. That shows the significance of what can be done with just a few words. Now, in the case of the witch, well, she's said a few words and everything has been destroyed. Everyone has died. And in the case of Aslan, he's said a few words and everything has come to life. And you must realize that we are in that situation in this world. There are people in this world who could say a few words and everything would be over. And this was a prevalent issue. This was an existential catastrophe or potential catastrophe that came to light in the time of C.S. Lewis. He lived in the time of the invention of the first atomic weapons. And he lived through wars. He was even in a war. So this image of someone saying a few words, and then the whole thing is over, is very clearly an indication of the times that he lived and even, quite unsettlingly, if it can be put in such words, the times we live in now. And of course, for the other side of it, we have this godly character which sings a song and the whole world comes to life. And there are people who can sing a song and bring the whole world to life. There are songs that do that. There are songs that do that in this world. And even just not in the world of music, not in the case of music, leaving music and song aside, there are people in this world who can say a few words and glorious things happen. There are people that have that power. There are people that have had that power and had it used for good and done good, and brought glorious things into existence that couldn't have happened otherwise. So that's a powerful thing to understand. That's a powerful parallel. You say a few words and the whole world is over, or you sing a few words and the whole world comes to life. And that is our dichotomy of good and evil. So, back to, our, back to our plot. Where were we? Okay, so Diggory and his friends, they're in the midst of this magical world, and, well, what's happening? Well, we've also got the caddy and his horse, right? So in London in those days, you didn't have cab drivers. Well, you did have cab drivers, but you also had caddies, which would be the horse-drawn cart, right? And actually, as it turns out, this horse that's turned up in Narnia is one of the ones that gets turned into a speaking animal, right? So Aslan's walking around turning all these animals into speaking animals and this horse is one of them and he starts talking. (laughs) He starts talking to his master. He starts talking to the caddy and he's sort of trying to remember his old life and he's thinking, oh, oh yeah, you used to put that saddle on me. Oh, yeah, yeah. And you used to whip me. You used to have that, oh yeah. You used to put that thing on me and I'd have to I'd have to pull it. And every time I ran, it felt like it was chasing behind me. And the more I ran, the more it chased me. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And I remember you used to give me those oats. You used to feed me oats. And it's sort of this it's sort of this strange moment where the caddy actually gets to talk to this horse that he's been working with all his life. And it's sort of It's sort of a bit strange because you realize that it wasn't actually quite a very good life that he had. And it's not like there's beef. It's not like the horse is now Strawberry, I believe he's called. It's not like Strawberry is saying, well, why did you do this to me? It's not like he holds resentment. It's almost like he can't even remember it. It's Sort of like this distant dream because now that he's in this world, well, it seems like well, well, actually, that's a very profound realization. And this happens in many ways in the story in many different moments, which is where you get to this new world, and then all of a sudden the old world seems like the dream. The old world seems like it's not the real world. And this world seems like the, the real world. So, so what, is, what is this world... And what is the other world really depends on where you are. And Strawberry is talking (laughs) to his old caddy master who used to whip him and put saddles on him as if it's this long lost dream. And as for, well, now, who else is there? We've got the caddy and the horse and then there's the, Oh, okay. So, Uncle Andrew. What is Uncle Andrew doing in all this? Well, he's seeing all these animals starting to talk, right? But he's actually in quite a bit of fear. He's actually in shock. And he feels himself to be in quite a lot of danger. And there's this curious thing that happens with Uncle Andrew, which is that he's in so much shock, so much fear, and so much danger that he convinces himself that the animals aren't actually talking. He actually convinces himself. He's successful in it. And that's one of the funny things about trying to convince yourself of something, which is that, well, eventually you do convince yourself. And this sort of defense or this sort of psychological trick that is happening on Uncle Andrew means that he's walking around hearing these animals making these sounds, but Polly and Diggory can actually hear them talking. Not only that, but the animals can't hear Uncle Andrew talking. They can't understand him. To, to them, they so- he sounds like he's just making noises. Now, isn't that just the splitting image of being in a foreign country and you speak a different language? Right, it's two different languages going on. Now, why are they speaking two different languages? Because they're from different worlds. And Uncle Andrew cannot wrap his head around that. It fe- <laughs> it, it feels so strange to be saying Uncle Andrew all the time, because because <laughs> I am Uncle Andrew. <laughs> I don't know if I I don't know if I really want to identify with this character, right? Like he's a <laughs> sure eccentric uncle, I can wear that, but I don't know I don't know if I really like what I've got in store for him as you'll see because Uncle Andrew he's actually so overwhelmed by this world that he faints, right? So now he's fainted in front of all the animals and they actually start standing around and talking, well, what are we going to do with him? And they start discussing with themselves even as to, well, what exactly is he? What is he? And some say, well, he's a tree. Some say, well, no, he's got to be an animal. And they've got this sort of reasoning. Well, no, if he was an animal, he'd be able to speak. And well, if he was a tree, he would be like this. And if he's got a nose, well, does it have a shape of a nose like you or me? And they're sort of comparing their noses, and they're all sort of talking about it. And eventually what happens is they agree that he is a tree. And the best thing for him would be to be planted. Now, he is lucky in the sense that they don't decide to plant him upside down. And even that takes a bit of reasoning because they can say, well, you know his his hair might be the roots or or the branches or what is it which way up does he go but eventually they decide to plant him the right way up so now he's in the he's fainted he's still passed out and he's buried up to his knees and the elephant gets this idea well he's a tree so he needs watering <laughs> so now we have this elephant spurting water over uncle andrew while he's buried up to his knees in the ground with all these animals sitting around talking about what he is, trying to work it out. (laughs) Isn't that just so absurd? Oh, my goodness. Poor Uncle Andrew. Now, as it comes to Diggory, what happens to him during all this? Well, it's not quite so fun. It's not quite such a laugh because Diggory gets called by Aslan. He gets called personally by Aslan to come and meet him. And Aslan has to ask him, well, how do you explain this witch turning up in this perfect world? And Diggory feels terrible. It is his fault that this evil witch has turned up in this otherwise perfect world. He was the one who brought her. How is he to explain this to Aslan? Now, the cabbie also meets Aslan. And Aslan asks him, well, if he'd like to stay in Narnia. And the cabbie says, well, actually, you know, it's quite nice here. And I think I probably would if my wife was here. And Aslan, well, he does his thing and he calls the wife from the other world and she just turns up and she's actually halfway through the dishes. So she's sort of got soap and bubbles and is washing the dishes, wearing her apron in the kitchen and she turns up all of a sudden and she's sort of not surprised. She's a little bit dreamy and she sort of stops what she's doing and walks over and joins her husband and sort of just fits in. It seems sort of natural for her to be there. And the Aslan god character, Aslan himself, asks the cabbie and his wife if they'd like to be the king and the queen of Narnia. And the cabbie is, well, he's thinking for a bit and he's wondering, well, I don't know if I'm the right person for the job. And Aslan asks him a few questions. He asks, says, well, Can you remember that these animals are not slaves? And, of course, the cabbie can learn this because he's learnt this lesson from his horse. And Aslan asks, well, can you raise children? Can you see people as not favorites and treat them equally? And the cabbie's thinking, yes, yes, I probably could do that. And Aslan asks, well, could you fight a war? Because wars will come to Narnia. And the cabby thinks, well, I haven't fought much, but now that I think about it, well, I can do my duty. And so the cabbie and his wife are made queen and king. And that is yet another image of someone being very different in this world as they are in their previous world. Now, when it comes to Polly, well, Aslan actually asks Polly if she's forgiven Diggory about the argument they had in the world where Diggory had struck the hammer. So you remember they'd been arguing right when he'd struck the hammer that had woken the queen up from her spell. Well, Aslan's actually asking about that. And she sort of says, well, yeah, well, we sorted it out. He did say sorry. So... That's what happens to Polly for a moment. Now, Diggory has this thing in his mind that he wants to ask Aslan for something that will help his mother. And he goes to him. And up until now, well, Diggory hasn't been able to look him in the eyes because Aslan is this big, powerful figure. He's not someone that you reason with. He's not someone that you bargain with. He's this big godly figure. And he still felt quite guilty about bringing the witch to this world. But Diggory is really upset about his mother. And he's actually crying. He's crying about his mother. And he looks up at Aslan, determined to ask him, for help. And when he looks into Aslan's eyes, he sees that Aslan is crying as well. And it's not just a soft crying, it's big tears. And Aslan says, I understand, I know, grief is great. And you and me are the only ones that know it in this world yet. And that is so powerful. That is something that is a deep bond between Aslan and Diggory. It's that Aslan knows his grief. So, Diggory doesn't... Ask Aslan, because actually Aslan has a mission for him. Aslan tells him he needs to go to a distant land and get an apple. And Diggory goes, well, okay, how do I get there? And Aslan asks Strawberry if he'd like wings, if he'd like to be a flying horse. And, well, Strawberry goes, yeah, sure. And he gets his wings, he gets given wings, he learns to fly. And he actually also gets given a new name in this moment. And that's significant as well. This transformation of this character, of this horse, from a normal horse to a flying horse, is reflected in the name. So he's no longer Strawberry, and he becomes Fledge. And Fledge takes Diggory and Polly on this mission that Aslan has given them, to go and get an apple, a special magical apple from a distant land. So they make the quest, and they reach this garden, which has a wall around it, which seems to be, by Diggory's account, very private. And he's only able to go in through the front gates, as is stipulated and the witch turns up. Now, before we go any further, I mean, we have to address this thing which is that, you know, an apple from a tree in a distant land in a garden, you know, it's so obvious what the reference is here, right? We can't get a, we, can't, we can't get around this reference. We just have to we just have to say something about this, which is the garden of get not Getsemane, the garden of Eden, right? So this image of the apple on the tree in this secret garden, is an image reflecting off the Garden of Eden. Now, it's not exactly as simple in this story, this story of the magician's nephew, as all oh, the apple represents knowledge and it also represents sin. And if you have the knowledge of life and death, well, then you have sin. It's not exactly like that at all. Because according to this, there are some technicalities within the magic of this tree. And one of them is that if you take from this tree for selfish gain, you will get what you want, but also a bitterness. As well. So you'll have everlasting life, you'll have the elixir of life, but you'll also have a bitterness that goes with it. Now, that's if you take from the tree for your own gain. Now, if you take from the tree under someone else's orders for someone else's gain, now that's different. That's the fine print in the magic. And that's how it works in this world which is very different to any sort of black and white imagery that we're drawing on from the Bible, from the Garden of Eden. And Diggory, well, he's left with this dilemma. Well, he actually faces the temptation. It's not not so much a dilemma as it is a temptation that he has to face. Because when he turns up, he thinks, well, couldn't I just have an apple for myself? Couldn't I just take one of these apples... Home from my mum for my mum, and also give one to Aslan. But he doesn't do it, he doesn't fall for them for the temptation. Now, the queen turns up and she does eat the apple, so she does have everlasting life, but she also has the bitterness. And in this moment, the witch is sort of there and she's sort of trying to trick Diggory into eating one of the apples. So she's like the snake version from she she's the character of the 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 deceit the, the deceiving snake in the Garden of Eden. And she's sort of giving him all these reasons like, yeah, but think of your mother. Think of how you could even take it yourself and you could live to be king of this land and we'll be king and queen together all over this land and why why are you trusting this lion anyway? Why exactly are you doing this? In this world that has nothing to do with you, for this wild animal you don't know what that lion's meaning is, you don't know what he's trying to plan with you getting this apple. What are you thinking? And the thing that saves him in this moment, the thing that Diggory falls back on, is that, well, actually he does trust this line because they have a shared understanding of grief. They have a shared knowledge of grief. They have a shared empathy. So Diggory escapes from where the witch is and he jumps on the horse with Polly, jumps on Fledge, and they fly back and give he gives Aslan the apple. Now the king and the queen, the caddy and his wife, have their coronation, and fledge even says that he looks like a real master now. <laughs> his clothes have changed, his face has changed, you know, he's not not wearing the same things anymore, and he's got this whole new life. Now, the animals turn up with this cage, which is so strange. This cage has a gold tree, a silver tree, and Uncle Andrew in it. (laughs) Now, the story behind the gold tree and the silver tree is that some coins had fallen out of Uncle Andrew's pockets as he'd been passed out and the animals had been trying to work out what he was. So the gold coin and the silver coin had grown into these trees. And it gets even worse for Uncle Andrew because actually the animals... Once he'd woken up and they'd put him in this cage, they'd tried to feed him, right? <laughs> so the birds had been getting worms and dropping them on him because, you know, well, birds eat worms and the beavers had been getting acorns and, you know, other animals had been having things and the bear had like got honey and and smudged it all over his face. So he, he's an absolute mess as he is right now. So poor Uncle Andrew is right in the pits during this whole Shenanigan, this whole chaos. And Aslan, well, he tells Diggory to throw the apple, and he does, and it lands right by the river, and it grows. And Aslan explains that the wrong time and the wrong way makes for the wrong fruit. And the right time and the right way makes for the right fruit. And that's the difference between the witch having the apple and Diggory having the apple. And as that tree grows, it bears more fruit. And on that tree the fruit that Diggory can take so Aslan tells him now take that fruit from this tree and take that to your mother which will heal your mother and if he had have taken the apple from the original tree well that would have actually made his mother sick and Aslan explains that even if you had have given the apple to your mother she would have turned out like the witch which is Having the fruit in the wrong time, in the wrong way, but because Diggory did as he was told, because he overcame his temptation, well, he was able to have the the good fruit, and that's very much a religious overtone. I mean, there's a very much a symbolic Christian symbolism in that, isn't there? I mean, do do as you're told, and you'll get the right fruit. Well. There is a lot in that. But another way of seeing it is that, I mean, you could twist this in a different way, which is that the knowledge of life and death, when taken in the right way, can bear the right fruits. But I don't think that's quite what C.S. Lewis would have meant. So we're drawing to an end, and Polly and... Diggory get given two things from Aslan. One is a warning and one is a command. And the warning that Aslan gives Diggory and Polly is that their world might go the same way as the witch's world, which is the deplorable word, which is that everything died. So the world where the witch came from is now dead. And it could be that earth goes that way too. So it's very obvious there. If the connection wasn't made earlier between the world that we're in, there it's made explicitly. Now the command for the kids is to bury the rings. Make sure no one gets their hands on those rings. So they return to their world, and they actually figure out that no time has passed. So this whole story has unfolded, and they turn up, and it's like the police officers are still out the front of Uncle Andrew's house trying to get the witch, right? It's like, whoa, time warp. And Uncle Andrew, well, he's passed out. He's I think actually, oh yeah, that's right. Aslan puts him to sleep for the trip home because that's what he really wanted. And he's sort of coming to with the police, you know, saying, well, what happened? What's going on? But most people don't even notice what's happening. And, well, things just go back to normal without really much memory happening at all. It's funny how that happens in stories. And Diggory gives his mother the apple. And she does become well again. She becomes better. And they do bury the rings, Polly and Diggory. And with the apple core, from the apple that was given to his mother, Diggory buries it in the backyard. And from there grows a tree. Now, it's not exactly the same sort of tree as you would expect to find in Narnia. Because it is in this world. It is from this world. And it doesn't have fruit that is the elixir of life. But it does have especially good fruit. It's still fruit of this world, but it's really good fruit. And the curious thing about this tree is that, well, the years go past and time goes on. And the years pass by with Uncle Andrew who tells stories of all sorts of things, and even Diggory becomes old and he becomes a professor and he travels to other countries and he has his inheritance. And after many years, after a really, a whole lifetime has passed, well, the tree is blown over in a big storm one night. And Diggory hears about this and he knows about this, And he decides to have a wardrobe made from the wood so as not to have it wasted and sent to firewood. And that wardrobe, well, you know what happens to that wardrobe, don't you? And if you don't, you'll find out in the next episode. The creation... Story is really one that's embedded in every culture. And every world has at some point been created. It's quite hard to really distinguish from where I'm sitting, the difference between having a God create it and having a thing create itself. And I think the key image and really the foundation of the creation of Narnia, and I believe even of this world as well, is the the image of the song. And... What we find in creation is all the different components of a song. Most notably, harmony. Melody. Rhythm. Color. And dissonance. And the interesting thing about... The song that Aslan was singing as he brought Narnia into existence was that to some people it sounded harmonious and to others, such as the witch and also to Uncle Andrew, it sounded dissonant, it sounded discordant, it sounded harsh. And that really gets at, well, what does it mean to be inside a world? What does it mean to have the experience of a world? And the answer to that is found most deeply in the experience of the origins, the source of the world. Where does the world come from? Now, this answer or this question, where does the world come from? We can answer that by saying, well, okay, so we've got two dozen paradigms which all offer a different answer to that, right? And we could go through all those paradigms. We can say, well, there's the New Age answer. There's the scientific rationalist answer. There's the quantum physics answer. And then there's also the various Abrahamic religious traditions' answer, and then there's also the fundamentalist or uh, Hindu, or what should we say, Eastern religion answers, and then there's also the philosophical answers, and so on and so forth. But really, there's a there's an essence that needs to be understood. There's something more personal. There's something more grounded. And it's a magic that you can find for yourself. It's a magic that you can actually answer personally. It's actually not from a paradigm that you find this answer of where did the world come from. And the way you find it, the thing that I'm really trying to get at is that you say, well, where did you come from? where did you begin what were your origins and that is a very different flavor that is a very different world of i want to say world of possibilities but that might be stretching our words a bit too much the the answers that will come if you ask that, as opposed to asking, well, where did the world come from, is very different. And yet they're really the same thing. They're really the thing that you're looking for because something needs to fit in that place. Something needs to fit in that question. Something needs to be there. And it's not as in a psychological need or a conceptual need. It's not like you have to have some way of speaking about and saying where did things come from, but rather you have to have something experientially. Now, how explicit that is and how prevalent that is and what the flavor of that is depends on everyone. I mean, the answer to the question, where did you come from, will vary as much as to how many different people there are, if you're talking experientially, if you're talking about the personal experience as an answer to that question. Now, if you're talking about philosophy or religion, well, then you do have many people saying the same answer. They say, well, God created the world. Aslan created the world. But this is completely different to having a personal experiential answer to that question. And let me let me really try and elaborate on this. This is so important because it's so easy to misunderstand this. It's so easy to just go away thinking still that a theory or a story or an explanation is a sufficient answer to the question, where did you come from? What was your first experience? What was your first experience? And we can break this down into bite-sized pieces. We can say, well, what was the first experience that made a strong impression on you? What was the first experience? Not as in the earliest memory, But the first thing that really hit you, something that really impressed upon your being in a few different ways, something that had powerful imagery to it, something that you can see in your mind's eye, you can see the colors, you can see the shapes, you can see the scenario like a photo, something that made an impression emotionally something that made an impression energetically, something that you can actually feel in your body. You can say, well, I had powerful emotions with that. It was guilt or shame or pride or love or hate or anger or frustration or desperation or joy or ecstasy. And really go into it experientially. Now, what what do, what does it mean? Let, let's say you have... Guilt as your emotion that goes with this first impression upon you. And you say, well, now let's break into that. What does guilt feel like? Where in your body do you feel it? Is it in your ribs? Is it in your lungs? Is it in your pelvis? What sort of facial expression did you have? What sort of speaking did you do? What was your tone of voice surrounding the event? And this goes on. This inquiry, this breaking down, this question of what was your first experience goes deeper and deeper and deeper. And that's something to be understood in relation to this conceptual question which is where did the world come from? who created the world? why did why does the universe exist? These questions they collapse in on themselves they become closely related they become connected in all the ways that they can be And really well really why why would you hold back why would you not want to, why would you not want to get to the bottom of it and actually be able to have the answers to all of these? Why not? And that is to say that having the answer is not something that you say. Having the answer is not something that you think. The answers to these, many of these, are experiential. So keep that in mind when I say, why not have all the ex- All the answers to these questions. And perhaps the most beautiful realization that you can have is that, well, what you are in your origins is music. What you have come from is harmony. In the same way that Aslan created a world from a song. Where you came from was from a kind of harmony, a kind of music. And it's not for me to tell you where you came from. It's not for me to guarantee that's the realisation you'll arrive at. I can't, I can't guarantee any realisations. And of course, even now we have to say, well, what exactly do you mean by a song? What does it mean to have your origins as a song? What does it mean that your very source is music? Music. It's already a little bit abstract. And this gets back to, again, this difference between, well, saying something as an answer and having something experiential as an answer. Because I can say to you, well, where do songs come from? Where does music come from? And if you're a musician and you've thought about it technically, well, you can have all sorts of things to say about that. And even if you're not a musician, well, you can have things to say about it. But these are just words. These are just ideas. These are things of the mind, psychologies, concepts, philosophies, stories. And yet, if I really press you and I say, no, experientially, where does music come from? When when you're singing along to a song, where does it come from? Well, you say, well, okay, I'm singing along. It comes from my voice, in my voice box. And you say, okay, well, you're using your voice. Are you using any, any other parts of your body? Yeah, well, I'm using my mouth. I'm using an expression on my face. Or oh, anything else? And you say, well, if I think about it, I must be using my lungs, right? And then you say, well... Is that all it is? Is it just movements in the body? Is it just lungs and voice and facial expressions? And you say, well, no, there is something else in music which is beyond all that because you use those things, right? You use your voice, you use your face, you use your lungs, but it's not always music. And if I really press you on it, if I really draw you into the space and actually guide you into this inquiry into how does it feel to have music come out of you then you can discover where music comes from it comes from you it comes from your being it comes from deep inside your very essence And in so many ways, that is also, well, where the world comes from. And I know these are very long, far outlandish connections to make. And in so many ways, you do have to just sort of go along with your journey. And like I said, it's a miracle to discover. To discover these sorts of things (laughs) in so many ways. Because there is no guarantee that you'll make the connections. There is no method for these sorts of discoveries. But they are there. And maybe, just maybe, by hearing some old eccentric Andrew Lake talk about it. Well, then you can start to tip in that direction. And of course, it's no secret that these things are the case because, well, we find them at the very core of one of the most popular stories of the 20th century. One of the most highest selling children's books in its day. Narnia was the biggest thing in its day. It was a huge story. And of course, the culture and the times were very different then. So it's not quite possible to compare it to now but nonetheless to find these themes to find these insights to have these realizations at the very center of the story like this is this is what the story is about it's not a passing comment it's not a it's not a subplot no aslan sung the world into existence That is the birth of existence. That is the central moment to this central story, to this wildly successful story. So that alone is something to step up and take note of. So those have been some thoughts on the magician's nephew. It's a pretty wild story. It's a pretty... (laughs) It's a pretty crazy nephew. It's a pretty crazy magician. Or Uncle Andrew, we should say. (laughs) And Uncle Andrew, well, he actually doesn't turn out that bad. As he gets older, this is something that's right at the end of the story. This is right at the end of the novel. He sort of grows older and he becomes friends with Diggory again and he becomes nice again. So it's not like he's bitter and manipulative because he sort of gives his magic ways away and... There's this funny comment where he's telling a story about the witch and he sort of says, oh oh man, she had such a terrible temper, but she was a damn fine woman, that sort of thing. (laughs) So like the Uncle Andrew has a bit of a crush on the witch. So (laughs) that's that's a pretty funny end to the book. And well, that's probably a good place for us to end now so thanks very much for tuning in we'll be very soon back back very soon probably probably by the time you're listening to this the next episode is already out anyway so you can just go and listen to the next episode but we're starting a new book book two in the next episode so look out for that that'll be the lion the witch and the wardrobe and boy is that juicy oh my goodness there is going to be so much juice in that This is some heavy juice coming up, so look out for that. Thanks for tuning in, and that's all I have to say for now.